1: Welcome back everyone. Happy almost summer. It's crazy. We're like getting so close to summer. It's starting to feel like it. We're starting to see, although a little bit different than normal, you know, graduation events. And I saw that Obama was doing a virtual uh, commencement, Mm -hmm. which it's nice that we're still at least, you know, these poor seniors who are not getting the traditional graduation experience, at least they can still get some motivation from some of the best speakers out there, I would argue, <laughs> so that
0: was cool to see. It's not just going through the motions, whereas you know taking it for granted that you're gonna have the the big graduation and stuff like that, but it's it means a little bit more, I guess now just because things have changed so that's where we're at and you know we're still trying to give you a little of information during this pandemic but we also are trying to do business as usual just trying to provide you guys what we have always strived to provide which is a starting point a conversation starter if you will a little bit of knowledge about this area of not just special education but how inclusivity kind of touches all of us in different ways. And today we have Dr. Sarah Curtis with us. She actually was referred, if you will, from Dr. Jackie Wilson, who had had on a couple of weeks ago. And we had such a great conversation with her. We knew we had to get Dr. Sarah on. So, Dr. Sarah, thank you so much for coming onto our podcast. Thank you for having me. So, we usually just start with you giving a little introduction about yourself.
1: Okay, so I
2: study primarily autism, and I think about my research as really being a platform for me to help families and autistic individuals. I studied human development and family studies, so I have a very family and developmental perspective when I think about special education. And my professional background before returning to school was as an adult service provider. So I managed a day program for adults with intellectual disabilities. And it was there where I chaired our agency's sexuality resource committee. So it, like a lot of people and a lot of not-for-profits in schools, I wore a lot of hats. So although I was primarily responsible for our vocational programming, I also run, ran all of our agencies, sex education. I didn't realize how lucky I was to be at an agency that actually had a fully developed sex education program, mm-hmm. a sex education policy, who was working to provide training on our adult service providers on sex education. So when I went to grad school, I thought that this was something that I could incorporate into my research. But my research is a little bit bit broader, I do study a lot of ways that families need help and support and the different ways that schools and families kind of interact to provide that support.
1: I was so excited to read your like little bio that we have because, you know, talking about reducing the risk of sexual violence for this population is something that I don't think is talked about enough. And I know that Vicki and I, in our practice, unfortunately, we have come across it quite a few times. And it's always disheartening when we talk to other professionals and it's like a shock to them that this is happening. this is happening in our schools, this is happening in our agencies, in our centers, that it's happening a lot more often than people think. And because people aren't talking about it, no one's doing anything about it. So I was like so excited to have you on because I think it's something that people really need to be aware of, not just that we need to be teaching better sex education to this population, but we need to be aware of the risks that are posed to these individuals.
2: One of the things, any individuals, but let alone individuals with intellectual disabilities, to then feel safe and comfortable and have the tools to talk about things when things aren't safe. So it's this kind of two pieces at once. One is by providing sex education, you provide the actual instruction needed to make a disclosure. Right. Because people aren't necessarily going to pick up on those words and those body parts and have those names and those labels without really intentional instruction. On the other hand, you're also saying that this is an aspect of your life that's normal. And I'm going to talk to you about it in a healthy way so you can establish those relationships that then really awful event that something doesn't feel right, you know that there's at least one person who's willing to talk to you about this
0: domain of your life. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that it's one of those things that you know, it's not comfortable for a lot of people to talk about. And one of the things that we through just the different experts that we've talked to through our podcast is that, you know, it may not be a neurotypical conversation that you would have with your 13 year old son or daughter, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't have it, right? There's just different ways to talk about, you know, when we're thinking about uh, developmental milestones and the appropriate what, you know, what is appropriate for a three year old, you know, what chores, things like that, you can break it down. And it doesn't have to uh-huh. be this very clinical or adult type of conversation, you know, depending on the cognitive abilities of the individual, there's just so many different ways that you can talk uh-huh. about it in a not so icky way, right, uh-huh. As to how some people may see it. And I think that's what's important about like the little projects that you have with the social skills, and you know, even family meals, right, At giving the terminology and just the space that I think it does not have in the world that we live in today.
2: Yeah, I think definitely creating that space is just a really important first step. And then I also think about the specific role of special educators, because in some ways, I think from uh, like the comfort with these topics, it can be a really big stretch. But in terms of the instructional element, they're so well prepared because it's the same instructional strategies that you would use for any other content area to teach about these topics. And then so there's that on one level from a more instructional perspective. But then returning to that like safety piece. The skills you need to have more bodily autonomy and assertiveness are part of the best practices in special education anyway, because it's really about self-determination. When you are um, creating space in your classroom for teaching things like choices, teaching things like assertiveness, teaching things like self-advocacy, all those skills are going to weave themselves into also creating young people who have more sexual safety skills. I do always like to say though, like it's great to teach communication skills. You're going to have to teach them also though, like domain specific to sexuality. And it's mm-hmm. great to teach self-advocacy skills. But you're going to have to teach them domain specific to sexuality. So it's really just adding in that step, using all the knowledge that you have from other areas.
1: Yeah. Cause like some of this is not as easy for these kids to generalize. You can, mm-hmm. you can teach self-advocacy that can be, you know, working well in all scenarios, but with regards to sexuality, it's very different, especially with young adults and young teens, the way that, you know, this typical, you know, teens and young adults approach sex. It's not always appropriate either. So then you bring in, you know, these, these mm-hmm. other factors. I can definitely imagine the instruction needs to be a little bit different.
2: Yeah, I think that element is really hard. It's really hard for kids because, are going to see things that their peers do that are inappropriate and they're not going to understand necessarily all the context. So there, you, know, when you think about how any child kind of grows up and learns about sex, right? Some of them are going to be learning about sex from their parents who are hopefully having open, honest conversations and dialogue. Some of them are going to get some sex education in school, which in the United States really varies from state to state, whether it even has to be medically accurate. So the quality of sex education varies pretty dramatically. But the vast majority of sex education happens in in extremely informal contexts amongst peers. Mm -hmm. So we really leave a high, high burden of responsibility on kids to teach each other these really difficult and challenging Concepts like consent. And so when you have a difficult time sifting through misinformation, that just makes all of that doubly hard for you. And there's added stigma and bias against your expressions of sexuality. So not only are you seeing people do things that are inappropriate, you're often being held to a different standard than other youth your age. We're not only are we not setting them up for success, we've raised the Bar
1: in terms of the
2: standard of behavior that we expect.
1: That's so challenging, I think. And, you know, then you add in the additional factor of, you know, many adults don't even understand the complexities of consent and many adults have problems with these biases. And so what's being like, you know, we know that kids watch their parents and they watch what their parents watch on TV and a lot of times, Those biases come through from that. And so that may be why a child, even of a typical peer, might be acting in a certain way at school. You know, they're learning it from what they see, which is like an
0: added factor. I think that that also kind of ties in. And what I was really intrigued by some of your projects and research is the resilience and the positive kind of image, I think that that is also something that we leave to peers to discuss amongst themselves and kind of what Amanda was saying, you know, children see what you see. And I was reading an article about this like face tune on Instagram where you can just basically like make your skin darker, or lighter, you know, mm-hmm. cinch your waist, waist in. And the message that it's sending to our youth about not really loving how you look or your body image. And I think all of that ties in, but something that is definitely left to the wayside is sexuality, just in general. And then, you know, being able to kind of be resilient in times of difficulty and that, that grit, that's hard to, to teach, right? It's really experience. So I was wondering what are some of the unique ways that you've projects or programs to kind of reinforce resilience in our youth?
2: That's a great question. So specifically in the domain of sexuality, find that just talking openly and honestly with kids and with adults, I've done with both, really just helps actually build a lot of that resilience. Because once you kind of scratch the surface behind the anxiety and like the embarrassment, They really want to know about this topic. So, one of the activities we do is like a a checklist of different developmental changes that happen during puberty. So, it has things like, you know, if has pubic hair, has body odor, and we would connect. We have like pictures that accompany these changes for students who might not be at that literacy level. And then, depending on the student we might do it more like a checkbox like has this happened to you and how do you feel about it so this kind of Mm -hmm. double checkbox Mm -hmm. has it happened to you yet and then or it might be more conversational for a student who couldn't handle that independently on their own so and I'll just never forget the look on this young woman's face as she was like going through the worksheet when she saw like cubic hair on there she was like I have that (laughs) you know and it was just like that somebody acknowledged this right. big change right. that was happening to her body. Right. Well, probably no one ever had before. Nobody ever had before. And so that was just one of those moments, you know. I've had some really great discussions. So we were I was doing an activity in a small group, all autistic adolescents, middle school age, all on grade level academically. And we were talking about different behavior that might be common that you see in middle school and whether it was like safe and appropriate, kind of questionable and really depend on the context and something that was not appropriate at all. And one of the things that I had on there is like one of the behaviors that we were talking about was touching other people's hair which in my mind I had put that activity in there thinking that's like a red category like something that's like never okay but then all the girls in the group started talking about how they love to lay around and play with each other's hair and how that was actually really socially appropriate And I was like, oh, I'm totally wrong. (laughs) Um, So it's like contextually inappropriate for like a boy to go up to a girl and start touching her hair Mm. without her consent. But for two girls who are friends to touch each other's hair, that was, you know, totally okay. So having those just kind of like dialogues and breaking down all those tedious details because the middle, middle school, high school, adult social landscape is extremely complex.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So many nuances from your girlfriends to your boyfriends Mm -hmm. to, you know, people who you're very close with versus someone that you barely know to... An adult acting differently than someone who's younger than you.
0: And I think with some of the classes, once you're in high school, with some of the the special day classes, you're a freshman, you know, 14, and there may be a junior or senior in your class, right? And so then the different dynamics and just even the body types, right? You know, like I will never forget when I went to college and then I went back to my high school to like visit I just remember thinking, oh my God, everybody is a baby. Nobody, you know, because once I was in college, I'm 18, but there's people 21, 22, you know, 23, maybe they're graduate students. And like that different context, I'm I'm sure is jarring. And even though we have these transition meetings, or even from high school to post high school, but even just middle school to high school, that's just something, you know, vocational is still something that should be addressed within the IEP, as well as academics and social emotional. And this, I just feel falls into so many different categories Mm -hmm. that are oftentimes overlooked, you know, it's kind of like, well, that's the parent's job. Even though in California, you know, we have a curriculum for it, there's very few um, special education that I've come across teachers that handle it in, I think, a very appropriate way instead of trying to kind of push it off onto the parents. So it's nice to hear, you know, the projects that you've been able to bring forward in these different areas that kind of almost ties everything together. Or you
1: see schools or teachers that think that uh, maybe a lower developmental learner isn't capable of understanding these concepts. And I've had IEPs where I've had special education teachers themselves say, well, these issues are too complex, so we don't think it's appropriate. And, you know, my response is the fact that it is so complex is more of the reason why you need to ensure that these students are getting the instruction because they're not going to get it appropriately anywhere else. You may need to modify the way you're speaking about it. Maybe we're not talking about consent in the same way. Maybe we're not talking about STDs. Maybe we're just talking about simply body parts and how appropriate touching, but something's got to be there because these students, all of them, no matter what their ability level no matter where
0: they're functioning, they need it. Yeah. You're not going to start street safety in high school when the child is, you know, around, you know, sidewalks and walking with their parent. you know, you try to start that as young as possible, or even just like with the stovetop, right. You're just like, well, they don't understand how to cook or they don't know what cooking, like they're still around it. So <laughs> you need to introduce it, you know, at an appropriate level. And Amanda hit the nail on the head, you know, oftentimes that's what we're doing at IEP meetings. And and to have those different resources, we're we're special education attorneys. And that's why we love having the podcast, because we get to talk to people like you that are doing that research, that are coming together with teachers to collaborate on different programs and curriculums. And I think that if we didn't know that existed, I'm sure a lot of our listeners didn't know (laughs) that they existed. So I guess, what are some great resources for parents? If they're in middle school, high school, and they feel like, you know, their, their child may be ready, or maybe they're just going to kind of introduce kind of some of these Mm -hmm. concepts. What are some resources that, you know, that are available uh, to parents to check out um, before they try to tackle this?
2: Well, for one, I would definitely recommend that parents use the IEP meeting as a way to legally advocate for making sure that their child is not being systematically precluded from receiving sex education. So if the school that your child attends is offering sex education, they should have a plan for how they're going to modify that sex education to meet your child's educational needs. And so you can bring that up in the IEP meeting to make sure that that is actually happening. Mm -hmm. Um, You can also use your IEP meeting to talk about issues of systematic safety, because as much as we want to build up resilience in young people, the weakness in our system is because there are adult perpetrators in our educational and other are getting settings that we have a responsibility to protect people against so it's another opportunity where we can kind of bring that to attention and make sure that at the very least educational teams know that you're a parent who is paying attention and thinking about issues of safety and the measures that the school has in place to keep your um, child safe, safe especially if your child is receiving like personal care support at school. Mm. Things that I mean like that are like having a a language and protocol in place to really articulate what is our personal care policy for our child like what's our personal care procedure and having that really spelled out and articulated having other issues of safety like monitoring kind of articulated with the team because anytime you raise awareness and visibility of these type of topics you're making the whole system safer the more people are talking about it the more people are of awareness the less space there is to Mm -hmm. sneak around because that's what sexual perpetrators do they look for weak systems they look for systems where people aren't paying attention so that's one thing parents can do right Off the bat is think about the resources that are already in place in their school and their IEP meeting really as a tool for making sure that really that they're not being denied access to the same educational experience that all the other kids are getting. Now I think one thing that is tricky is that what does it mean when we say that is appropriately modified or accommodated to meet that child's needs? Because I don't know of any states that have clear guidelines for what it means to modify sex education. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I think there are some resources out there that are geared towards parents, but there's a lot more that are geared more towards educators. Mm -hmm. So there are adapted curriculum that are available. There are lesson plans that are available. And there are some websites that do a really nice job, actually, about providing information to parents, too. They
1: don't need to reinvent the wheel here. They They don't have to
2: wait. They're out there. there. Yeah, and so what I try to do is I actually created a website called asdsexed.org, where I try to just anything that I find that is adapted for students with intellectual disabilities or students on the autism spectrum, I put it there. You know, just like a res—it's like a really like souped up resource list. Mm-hmm. So if you went on the website asdsexed.org, you would find a lot of resources. And there's like a parent section, there's an educator section. I wish I had more resources in this domain, but there are some Spanish language resources. And so that would be like my one go there and it would put link you up to some of the other things that are available.
1: That's fantastic. We will definitely add that to the show notes so that our listeners can all take a look at that.
0: Yeah, I just went on and it's so cute. It's like the birds and the bees teaching human sexuality to individuals on the autism spectrum and with developmental disabilities. But I think it could be open to anyone, right? I think the way that you have, you know, the hot topics, you know, sexual safety, adaptive intercourse, you know, body image, masturbation, sexual health. I think all of those are topics that you wouldn't necessarily think right away away when you're like birds and the bees like i feel like that's just every parent's like drudging, mm-hmm. like night like or are just like okay well i just have to tell them about this and this and that's you know and just the birds that, but it it's so it it's encompasses everything yeah. you know that is part of Being a human, right? I mean, just even when you were talking about puberty, I mean, I feel like, again, in my experience, I've only come across a couple of teachers that have ever even spoken about that in their classes, right? I think the focus is just so inherent on the, the academics that sometimes educators forget that the social emotional aspect and the vocational aspect really make us a whole human being, which is the premise behind the individual. Individuals with Disability and Education Act is, is to try and produce independent members of our society, regardless of their abilities. And you've done an amazing job. I love this website. I'm just like looking through, it. I'm clicking through, but yeah, we'll definitely put it in the show notes. How if people had questions or comments for you? Should they go through the website? How how can they reach you? Oh yeah, that would be, so if you, they have like, it, have the website has like an
2: ask me. So and mm-hmm. I'm I try to stay as on top of that as I can. I'm also I try to be as available via email, too, so my email is curtis at udell.edu, so feel free to email me. I've, and parents do email me pretty regularly on the That's website, awesome. and I, I don't always have the resource that they want or can't answer their question, but I, I do my best. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think it's a great starting point and we're lucky that you're able to dedicate the time to this. And we just so appreciate your time for being on our podcast as well.
2: I just think it's amazing that you guys do this podcast. It's
0: great. Oh, thank you. (laughs) We like to talk a lot. So, I mean, it just ended up just working out for us. (laughs) We're just glad people actually want (laughs) to listen. Yeah. Well, that's it for us. Hopefully you will listen next week. Uh Because we'll be back with a new episode. Thank you so much, Dr. Sarah Curtis, for joining us. And we'll talk to you guys next week. Bye.